This audiobook recording is offered by Jacob's Well Media. We hope the telling of this story will touch your heart and glorify our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. From the gallows to the glory, the true story of the convict Daniel Mann, who was executed December 14, 1870, for killing his guard at Kingston, Ontario, Canada, by P.J. Loiseau, who regularly visited him in prison and spent the last night in his cell. Preface by the Author Various suggestions have been made concerning certain statements in the publication which might cause offense rather than edification, and I have cheerfully complied by cutting these out. One suggests the following. I am glad there is nothing for morbid curiosity at the drop, but still for the information of those at a distance who have no opportunity of knowing the circumstances under which he was sentenced and hanged, a very short account should be given of the nature of his crime. Daniel Mann was thirty-four years of age when executed. His life evidently had been a wild one. I never spoke with him about his past life. Our interviews, no matter how long, were wholly taken up with the Word of God. Five years before his execution, he was convicted of housebreaking with attempt to rob and sentenced to fourteen years at the penitentiary at Kingston. Here, after five years of his time had expired, he, with a fellow convict, formed a plan to escape. They were both employed at a lime kiln, a short distance from the penitentiary walls, under a guard. At an hour when no one was near, one was to attract the guard's attention in some way, while the other was to strike a blow sufficient to stun him, they were then to bind him hand and foot and flee. For some time the heart failed them, but at last, growing desperate, while his fellow prisoner was amusing the guard with some carved bones, man struck the blow which killed the guard. They fled, but were taken again a short time after. This was in July. After the judgment which sent man to the scaffold and his fellow prisoner back to the penitentiary, Man was transmitted to the common jail where I first met him. When he arrived there in November, he could scarcely read at all in the large testament he had, but before he died he read nearly as well as anyone can read, and but few passages could be quoted without his being able to turn at once to them. A few quotations from the Toronto Daily Globe, whose correspondent with several other gentlemen visited man the day before his execution, will give a better idea of him 
than any words of mine can convey. Quote, Man's cell was next visited. A single glance at him showed he was a different man altogether from his fellow prisoner, one who was hanged at the same time with him for poisoning his wife. He has a light, keen, piercing eye, an intellectual-looking forehead, and in his conversation showed a clear head and an active mind. There is no doubt that had he received proper training from his youth, he could have been a man above the ordinary stamp. But he told Mr. O'Reilly he had received no education, secular or religious, save some six months at a public school, and until he grew up had not even an idea of God. Man's visitors parted with him when, with painful emotions, they felt that he, with an acute intellect, a courageous and energetic disposition, and a resolute spirit, might have been an honored member of society. But his associations from childhood were evil, and only evil, and he goes to the scaffold at the early age of 34 years. Unquote from the Toronto Daily Globe. Some have hinted a doubt concerning the veracity of the narrative, as if the language given could not be the language of Daniel Mann. To such I can but say that if by Daniel Mann's language they mean the very incorrect expressions he often used, they have reason to say I have not used his own language. I have no gift for mimicry, and while I despise nothing like an attempt at literary attainment in the things of God— I see no profit in perpetuating breaches of speech. I endeavor to catch a man's thought, and if called to relate it, I do so in the best language I know. Often while writing the substance of an interview immediately upon having left him, I felt my utter incapacity to describe what had passed between us. I could but wish that many might have been in a position to see and hear without being seen of him. Would to God every child of his were as much under the power of the Holy Ghost as was this wonderful object of his grace. Praying that the Lord's blessing may accompany the narrative with more and more power, after being circulated in almost every part of the globe, it is again sent forth in the world. P.J. Loiseau, Kingston, Canada And now the reading of from the Gallows to the Glory, the true story of the convict Daniel Mann. I called on him for the first time on Friday, November 18th. He appeared very cheerful, but his ways soon convinced me he was doing all in his power to excite himself into happy feelings, to drown the thought of his impending execution. Upon testing him a little as to the ground of the hope he expressed concerning the life to come, I soon found it to be his thorough repentance, his comparative freedom from evil desires, his great love of God, and so forth. He thought surely he had made his peace with God, since he had so many good things to show. His lips talked about Jesus and his love very nicely. He repeated some of God's precious promises, but... Evidently his heart was so intensely occupied with self that he could grasp no meaning in those promises. His earnest face, however, 
and the thoughtful attention he paid to what I said to him attracted me at once. I remembered how, at the climax of my own misery, someone had pointed me to Romans 3, how it had opened heaven to me, the unutterable deliverance it put me into, and I burned to have him get into the same place. I told him nothing he could do could save him, neither his repentance, nor his love, nor looking to the work of the Spirit in him could give him peace with God. You are lost, I said. You are dead in trespasses and sins, condemned already, and you might as well think that weeping and promising to do better could put away the sentence pronounced against you the other day as to think your repentance or your promises or anything from you can remove the curse of God's eternal law which now hangs over you, as well as every other soul of man who is not saved. I told him the only thing which could meet a lost man's need was salvation. A dead man needeth life, and a condemned man needed mercy. I declared to him that he was grievously mistaken. If he thought he had made his peace with God, he could never do that. What then must I do? said he in a half-bewildered way. Read there, I said, and my finger pointed to Colossians 1.20. And having made peace through the blood of his cross. I pointed again to Galatians 3.13 and said, Read again here. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. I then besought him to read thoughtfully and prayerfully Romans 3, 4, and 5, and commending him to the Lord, who alone I knew could open his blinded eyes, I left him in his lonely cell. I did not call again until Tuesday, November 22nd. The turnkey at the entrance door told me that one of the criminals was anxious to see me. Without asking which of the two, I called first on the one occupying the cell nearest the entrance door, but found him, much as before, more occupied with the actual consequences of his crime than with his lost condition before God, ready enough to pray and enter into devotional exercises, but completely blind as to the ground of salvation. I left him much downcast in spirit, and full of that dejection which often makes me long to be with Christ, when I have set forth a finished salvation before sinners, and they answer me, I will try to do better. And I had well-nigh forgotten the turnkey's announcement when, Daniel Mann's cell being opened to me, I was soon reminded of it. Scarcely had I taken my seat on the wooden bench beside him when he said to me, I longed to see you. What for? said I. Since daylight this morning, said he, I have not been able to pray. I can only find time and room for praise. How is that, said I? What makes you so happy? You remember, said he, your visit to me last Friday, and the three chapters you told me to read in Romans? Well, after pondering a good deal on what you had told me, and which sounded so differently from anything I'd ever heard, I read them over and over again, but I seemed to get more and more miserable. All day Sunday was dark and gloomy, and yesterday, too, I felt as if I must surely perish. 
Last night I could not close my eyes a single moment, but I lay on my couch in misery. Oh, what misery! Suddenly, while in my despair, my mind was arrested by a part of Romans 5, these verses, For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commandeth his love toward us, in that, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Oh, dear sir, need I tell you the effect? I jumped to my feet. I praised God outright. I felt like a man who is already in heaven. I saw why Jesus was on the cross crying out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I understood what is meant by, It is finished. I saw God's love to me, and I praised and praised and praised again. I saw my salvation was not out of anything from me, but out of Christ's finished work. So I cried out, O glorious thing! I am as sure of my salvation now as I am sure Christ's work was finished over 1,800 years ago. I have it. I have it. For I believe God's word. As he spoke, his earnest face, wet with tears, looked to me like the face of an angel. Tears rolled down my face, too. I took his neck in my arms and could but exclaim, My brother, my dearest brother, we shall sing together throughout eternity the value of the blood of Jesus. Again he said, How blind I have been! I never saw till this morning. Till then my eyes were altogether turned inward, looking within to see something that God could be pleased with, but since early this morning my eyes are turned outward to that which has been done for me. Till this morning I always thought what I had heard many say, that Christ had done his part, and we must do ours to be saved. What my part was, however, I could never get anyone to tell me with certainty, and still less could I get my soul to tell me. I had the Bible, but I did not know where to begin. I was told I must repent, and earnestly and prayerfully I went at it, but never had the certainty I had fully satisfied God. I was told by many to be very earnest in prayer, and I agonized with God till I could but cry out, Lord, if I must go to hell, I will go there praying. I tried every way, but there was no light. Sometimes I tried to make myself believe that I was harder to please than God, and comforted myself with the thought that when I got there I should find him much less severe than I thought. But after all, all was darkness and the chance of hell for the world to come was not very frightful to me, compared with this world. Before my trial, I prayed many a time that I might be hanged, but not sent back to the penitentiary. But this morning, as I saw my salvation all finished, yes, finished by the Lord Jesus, as I saw I was justified freely by God's grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. An indescribable peace took hold of me. All was bright. I saw at once I now had the key to the scriptures, 
the key of heaven itself. The face of God was now visible to me. I could see him smiling on me, and I shouted at the top of my voice, This is the true light that cometh from heaven. Ah, talk to me now about doing my part, and I answer, I have been doing it since my birth, and here is the sad end of it. Here I felt in my heart the pang which crossed his own, and I said, Yes, you have faithfully finished the work the devil gave you to do, but hear the word in John 17:4. I have glorified thee on the earth, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Who said that? What work was that which the Father gave him to do, and which he in anticipation says he has finished? The pang was gone. His face beamed again. The word finished was enough to soothe all his sorrows now. It made him laugh with delight every time it was pronounced. We knelt and praised God together for a long while, and I left that, the happiest of all places on earth, a converted criminal's cell. On Friday, November 25th, I called again, but finding there was a visitor with him, I told the turnkey I would return the next day. Upon returning the next day, I found him anxiously expecting me. The turnkey told him I was coming, and he said he knew he would have another feast. "'What do you mean by another feast?' I asked. "'Are you so fond of visitors that my coming should be a feast to you?' "'Oh, no, sir,' he replied. "'Of course I love you very much. I cannot help that. "'For you are the one whom God has used to show me the way, "'his way of saving sinners. "'It is what you point me to.' that makes the feast. You know, when a man is as near his end as I am, he cannot be expected to take much comfort from anything but what God has said. That is the very thing which first drew me to you. You never said anything or answered anything without referring me at once to Scripture. I feel exceedingly happy, I said, when I see a man whose confidence lies alone in what the Word of God teaches for I know this is not the work of nature. Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and his voice being heard only in the Scriptures, it is no wonder you care for nothing but that. Tell me, he asked, why did I not see the truth sooner? For I had been in the same distressed state of mind nearly since I was retaken in July. I remember one night that the sight of my sins became such that I cared neither for my narrow cell nor the punishment I expected in this world. Appearing before God in such a condition terrified me, so that I lay all night curled up on the floor, crying out, Oh God, I am surely doomed. There can be no hope for such a wretch as I. It was the first time in my life I knew what conviction of sin was, I had already before wished much to be a Christian, and to attain my wish endeavored to lead a better life. He continued, For quite a while in the penitentiary I, I stopped stealing altogether and refused to join in the wickedness of my fellows until, overcome again, I made up my mind it was of no use trying to be a Christian in such a place but that night it was no more trying or wanting to reform 
It was a burning within, a tossing up and down, an unaccountable anguish which made me think of hell, a place where a man craves for death and cannot get it. I was regularly visited and portions of scripture were read to me, but to no avail whatever. Why did I not see the truth sooner? First of all, I answered, God's time is the best time. Had you found peace in believing before your trial, it would have been very different from what it was. You would not have pleaded not guilty, which was a lie. You would not have needed lawyers to talk for you and color things, but you would frankly, openly, and truthfully have stated things as they were. The truth thus spoken has great effect on men's hearts. They might have seen your real intention was to disable the guard, not to kill him, so as to effect your escape. You might have been sent back to the penitentiary for life, whilst God can glorify himself most in this way. And remember now that since you believe the question of your salvation is eternally settled, God expects you to have only his glory at heart. See Second Corinthians 5.15 And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him who died for them and rose again. Second, how can a man tell another the way to a certain place, I asked him. Of course, he must know it himself, he said. True, I answered. And before a man can preach Christ, he must know Christ, have Christ. Mark that I do not say before he can preach, but before he can preach Christ. A man may preach all his life and preach with such eloquence that not an eye could be dry, and yet not preach Christ. A well-informed mind, a sentimental imagination, and a good flow of language is all a man needs to make a popular preach. But to preach Christ, a man must be converted. He must be born again. You could speak of Christ now. You have passed through God's school. The first class was that night when you curled yourself up on the floor of your cell. You were in the second when I found you, that is, trying to repent and to pray and to sing yourself to heaven, doing like the woman who had an issue of blood and tried all sorts of physicians without growing any better, but rather grew worse. You passed the third last Tuesday morning, and you are a graduate. The best robe covers you. With the touch of faith, you touched the hem of his garment. And then and there you were, like her, immediately healed. Could not you tell others now the way to be saved? Why, sir, that is all I can talk about to the turnkey and to poor dear deacon when we get together for change of cells. I cannot think about anything else now. And though some may look upon it as presumption... From the abundance of my heart, my mouth must speak. There is another thing I must tell you. Dear, earnest souls, really converted men, may be very zealous in advising and trying to teach others without helping them at all, and the reason is this. They have never learned the difference which God's word makes concerning the relative position of believers and unbelievers, 
Therefore they will apply to a believer what belongs to an unbeliever, and vice versa, so that confusion must ever prevail in the advised person's mind. God's word calls believers saints, and all the rest sinners. Sinners are described in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, 10. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Saints are described in the next verse. And such were some of you, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. God's word speaks to these as to men who are saved, to those as to men who are lost, and unless that distinction is strictly adhered to, the state of things which is seen is mentioned in Ezekiel 13.22. With lies ye have made the heart of the righteous sad, whom I have not made sad, and strengthened the hands of the wicked, that he should not return from his wicked way by promising him life. A flood of light was pouring into his precious soul. Then, said he, I can confidently take my place among God's children now, for I do believe, and the Spirit of God bears witness with my own spirit, that I am a child of God. I know I have eternal life, he said. It is the gift of God through Jesus Christ, and I have it by faith. Yes, I said, having seen by faith the eternal redemption which Christ has obtained for us, having seen by faith that he has by himself purged our sins, you may be as sure of your salvation as if you were already in heaven. God's word is as good as his deed. Ye are complete in him, is his declaration to every believer. Only your assurance now must be by faith, whilst in heaven it will be by sight. He said he had been in trouble reading 1 Corinthians 3. He could not comprehend about the works of a man being burned and himself saved as by fire, but now he saw through it. The man who was on the foundation was a saved man, and if he worked for God, he would receive a reward for his faithfulness. But if he did not work for God, he would get no reward, but only be saved as a man out of a fire, just with his life. Ah, he said, would it not be sweet if life were mine again to live for God now in everything? I felt glad to see he had grasped the difference between the eternal security of every true believer and his daily responsibility as a believer to God. Knowing that his salvation is secure through Christ's finished work, that there is no more condemnation for him, the believer is apt to stumble on such a passage as 2 Corinthians 5.10, unless he sees its application to his works, respecting which he will have to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. 
As soon as he sees that it is no more the question of his salvation which is to be raised, but that of his works from the time of his conversion, his soul abides in perfect peace, in the assurance of salvation. This result I at once perceived in Daniel Mann by his peaceful expression, Ah, would it not be sweet if life were mine again to live for God now in everything? Would you like to have life given to you again? I said. I really could not choose, said he. The only thing that could now bind me to earth is what I have just said. But on the other hand, I have often wished, since you were here last, that I might not have so long to wait till I see Jesus face to face. The evening and the night after your visit, I was especially happy. I had caught new views of the face of God, and I felt so happy that I wished they might have allowed me to go to the scaffold then. On Sunday, November 27th, he pressed the turnkey to go to the preaching of the gospel at the city hall, saying that if he were free, that's where he would go. The turnkey said he would go if he could, but something preventing him, he did not go in the afternoon. When time for evening meeting came, he pressed him again. So he came, and as he walked home with me after the meeting, he said nothing was more affecting than to see Daniel Mann preaching to his fellow criminal in the morning. If anybody can do deacon any good, he said, it is Daniel Mann. He talks like a man who knows what he's about and where to put confidence, and he preaches to me also in such a way that it stirs me all up. I heard afterwards that on one occasion the turnkey had spoken to the effect that he was not as great a sinner as some others, upon which man answered, He that believeth not is condemned already. On Monday, November 28th, I found him, to use his own words, resting in the finished work of my Lord. He was exceedingly occupied with Ephesians 2, 3, especially the last clause, and were by nature children of wrath, even as others. I see plainly, he said, that without one single crime I was lost, by nature a child of wrath, unfit by my very natural condition to dwell with God, and surely if on account of my very nature I was lost, what was I with all my sins and my crimes? But, oh, the blood, the blood of Jesus, it cleanseth from all sin. I see now what that means in Romans 3. There is no difference. I see the whole world is lost, the most moral as the most immoral, all alike lost, and no better off than I am before God unless they too rest in the finished work of Christ. Oh, I am afraid there are thousands who pity me this day. Well, they are really objects of my deep pity, for I fear they think that they are not as needy of Christ as I am, not having run to such excesses. We had a good while of sweet fellowship together, during which I could see the wonderful progress he was making in the knowledge of Christ. On Thursday, December 1st, as I came into his cell, he said he was just thinking of me, wishing I might come, 
The sweet calm of his face was the same, but his heart often swelled unaccountably as if it would break. Does Satan assail you with doubts? I asked. Oh, no, he replied. I have not had a shadow of doubt since I saw the finished work of Christ. I know that is as well finished as mine. I know my redemption is as sure and everlasting by his work as my damnation was sure and everlasting by my work. The fruit of my work was death to him, but the fruit of his work is life, eternal life to me. Thanks be to God evermore. How can I ever sink resting on such a rock? But I suppose my sorrow is the harvest that one must inevitably reap from what he has sown. To die is gain, great gain to me now, but I cannot sing like Paul and Silas. They were reaping the fruit of faithful service to God, while I am reaping the fruit of faithful service to the devil. He asked me for some explanation of Romans 7, which he had been reading. From verse 5 it is the experience of a man who, being quickened through faith in the blood of Jesus, is learning what the flesh is. This thing which he hates is what God calls the flesh. The law thunders out from Sinai with its divine cursing power, Thou shalt not lust. And the man, knowing the law is holy, just, and good, struggles to obey it. But in his vain endeavors to conquer the flesh, he is at last compelled to cry out, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Ah, says God at this juncture, you have got just where I wanted you to get. Your struggles to make the flesh better have been as vain as your efforts were to make compensation for your sins. You have found your weakness. I can now deliver you and cause you to call out, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thank God, thank God, he exclaimed, to have sent a man to Kingston to point me to such amazing love and grace. These passages have shown me more of what my soul already apprehended. It appears to me as if I were no more in existence, but as it were living in another and continually repeating to him what on the cross he did for me. Oh, he added as he squeezed the book against his bosom, I feel sometimes like eating it. Such is my craving to get hold of its blessed contents. The intense affection which was settling in my bosom, for that man cannot be told. I had been preaching in Kingston five months, five times a week, and teaching seeking souls from house to house besides, and yet but few did I know who in all that time had made the progress he had made since he had found peace in believing. I saw in him what I already believed, that the reason why people who know Christ are so slow in growing and walking in him is because they are not free from seeking honor of one another. He cared for man no more. His ear was open to God alone, and the strides he made were wonderful. He asked me if I would be with him at his execution. It would be the last kindness I could do him on earth. I said, 
yes, though I felt doubtful of my ability to bear it. On Saturday, December 3rd, I called again. That cell inside those dark walls was not the most attractive place to me on earth, yet I felt thankful to the Lord for the kindness of the authorities in allowing me to go in as often as I pleased. His mother was with him when I came, so I sent word asking him, Should I go away and return after a while? He answered that he was the more anxious to have me come in, as he longed to have his mother see what he saw, and I might be able to set the gospel before her more clearly than he could. I gladly went in, and while I was setting before her the finished redemption which is in Christ Jesus, he broke out, unable any longer to hold the rivers of living water which filled him, and said, Yes, mother, it is all finished, all done, and the veil of heaven has been rent in twain, and such sinners as we are, believing, can have boldness to enter in by the blood of Jesus. When I came to this prison three weeks ago, mother, I only knew one passage in the whole book which could give me any hope at all, and that was in Timothy, these words, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. I would repeat this passage to myself and say, Then there is hope for me. I need not despair. But I thought I stood a chance only at death. If during the time I had yet to live, I in some way became good, I should stand a good chance when I died. But, O oh, Mother, it is finished, all finished. And Jesus since then has been sitting at God's right hand, to enjoy the sight of believing sinners. Mother, as sure as Christ sits at God's right hand, so sure am I that I am saved and that I shall be with him in a few days. His mother wept bitterly, especially when she left him she could not control her sobs. But he comforted her in the last, saying, Mother, I never was any comfort to you, but now you may have this comfort in the rest of your days. The law demands my body, but it is all it can do. I am now redeemed by the blood of Jesus, and you may be sure that in a few days you will have a son in heaven. His composed, smiling face was beautiful as long as he could thus comfort his poor mother, but as soon as the sound of her steps was lost in the corridors and we were locked in alone again, his heart began to swell and his sobs, breaking out almost into roaring, manifested such distress that I could only look at him and weep. Soon, however, he looked up to heaven and, lifting up his clasped hands, unburdened himself in beseeching God, to comfort his poor mother and all those he was grieving by his sad end. Soon he was calm again, as usual, and turning to me, he said, I wish I had not to wait so long to be with Jesus. I said, Let us talk to our Lord a little. We both knelt close together, and he commenced at once to pray, or rather, indeed, 
to talk to the Lord. It was a child asking his father for what he needs. He especially requested that wherever the Lord should send me to preach the gospel, the hearts of the people might be opened to hear it. He praised God for a long while that he had sent his dear son into the world to do the work by which such poor, wretched sinners as he could be saved. He praised Christ for having finished the work of salvation which his father had given him to do. He praised God for having revealed his son to him, in whom he had eternal life, and he finished by asking that I might not grow weary in the work I was in, that I might be comforted in all my difficulties, and that I and my family might never want anything, and that the Holy Ghost might lead me wherever there were such needy souls as he was. After we had risen, I noticed he was very pale. I asked him if he felt faint. Oh, no, he said, but the thought that our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, quite carries me beyond this world. I wish the time was not so far away for me to be out of this body and to enjoy him without distraction of any kind. The thought of bodily pain is nothing. I am learning every day more to hate myself, and the denial of what we hate is not very hard. I see in you, I said, the same thing that is seen in every man who is getting acquainted with Christ. He finds such beauty in Christ that he cannot but loathe himself, and the nearer the Christian lives to the Lord, the more he loathes himself. Jesus alone is worthy to be praised, adored, and served. You make me glad, he said. It is joy to my soul to hear man made nothing of, and Jesus made everything of. Oh, what a love I feel, kindling in my bosom for all on the face of the earth who make nothing of man and everything of my Jesus. He told me he had read the first epistle to the Thessalonians, and he had plainly seen that the same Jesus who had gone up to heaven in a cloud, in the view of his disciples, would come again in person, and it seemed to be a subject set before the children of God for their hope and their comfort. Do you believe in that? he asked. I believe what you have found in Thessalonians, I answered and which is treated in many other places in Scripture, as to the Lord's return, it is what Scripture declares every child of God ought to be waiting for incessantly. The Word says His Lord is to come at any hour, at any moment, and He should be in a waiting state in heart and practice. How sweet that is, he said. Even if I am executed before He comes... You may not have to wait long. Oh, be very earnest, my brother. On Monday, December 5th, I found him brighter and more cheerful than at any time before. His coat was rolled up for a pillow at one end of a wooden bench, and he was lying there, feasting on God's love, as he said, when the sound of the key roused him. Daily, he said, things were growing 
brighter for him. Daily he abhorred himself more, and delighted in the Savior more. Even in my sleep, he said, the love of God occupies my unconscious thoughts. He said before he had peace, he often agonized in prayer for hours. But since he had seen that Christ on the cross had gone through the agony for sin, he could feel agony no longer. But he delighted to lie quietly and just think of the love of God. And oh, such rapturous hours, he added. What will it be when I get there? All this is no sentimental religion whose seat is in one's imagination or feelings. It is a solid rock the believer's feet are on, and founded on that he may well feel happy. He got much blessing from John 17:4. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. So far he had only seen Christ satisfying the justice of God in dying for poor sinners, but on this occasion he saw Christ glorifying God in that work he had been sent to do. He saw the wonderful sovereignty of God, since every word which he had spoken must be entirely fulfilled, even if it cost the very life of the darling of his bosom, and this sovereign righteousness brought out fully by the work of Christ. By it he proves the holiness of God, his unflinching justice and his amazing love, all combined and interlaced. He is holy, and therefore the sin of the sinner must be put away before the sinner can approach him. He is just, and therefore Christ must be made a curse for us before we can be redeemed from the curse of the law. He is love, and therefore he comes down in a man, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses upon them. This, of course, carried him far beyond the thought of his own eternal safety. The glory of God was a new field for his delighted soul, he said it was very sweet to him to see the change that peace with God brought in a man's mind. Before he had peace, occupied with himself incessantly, he cared for nothing and nobody. But now, occupied with Christ, his heart went after everybody, longing that all might get what he had. He was not insensible to their temporal things, but it was their spiritual things which occupied him most. He seemed especially anxious for the souls of his fellow convicts at the penitentiary, and several times expressed the wish that I should be allowed, if it were but once or twice, to preach to them about the finished redemption in Christ Jesus. On Wednesday, December 7th, after returning from the country, where I had gone the day before to preach, I heard that something had come out in the morning daily paper as a production from Daniel Mann, which was unbecoming to a child of God. Upon procuring a paper, I found it to be truly what it was represented to be, and even supposing the things he said to be just, and ascribing the way in which he said them, 
to his great ignorance of the rules of well-bred society, the spirit manifested was anything but a spirit of love, especially toward certain officials of the penitentiary. I had, from the moment he had found peace, been so confident of him being a converted man that I could scarcely believe the article was his own. And to avoid troubling him unnecessarily with what was going on outside, I went to the publishing office to ascertain. The original article was shown me, and I could doubt no longer it was his own handwriting. A keener pang had never crossed my bosom. Thoughts of all sorts rushed to my mind, and Satan assailed me with the dreadful thought that my erring brother was only a hypocrite, doubly worthy of contempt for his ability to be, so in the face of death and eternity. In my sorrow I could but say with the weary prophet, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. In a moment, however, I was reminded how often I had failed, and far more grievously than this, since I had found peace in Christ, also how much more grievously than this Peter and the others had failed, though children of God. So I took courage and went to the prison, feeling sure the opportunity had come for the admonition in Galatians 6.1. Brethren, if a man be overtaken by a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. As soon as I had entered his cell, he said he had been longing to see me come in. He felt very much dejected, and he could not tell why. Since when, I asked. Since yesterday morning, he replied. And oh, how I did wish to see you all day yesterday. Have you lost your peace, I asked him. No, he said, I can rest in God's love, because I see there is no other ground where a sinner can rest. But rest is not enough for me. I want to rejoice in the Lord, and I cannot. As I saw his broken state of mind, I felt I must deal very gently with him, so as not to grieve him beyond measure. More than ever drawn to him, I could now also wound him without fear, for his wounds were mine. So I said, Perhaps you have not heeded the admonition in Ephesians 4, 30-32, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be ye kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. The article from you which came out in yesterday morning's paper did not surely breathe that tender-hearted, forgiving spirit spoken of in that passage. Therefore the Holy Spirit who now dwells in you has been grieved. And if you grieve your comforter, how do you expect to be comforted? Ah, my brother, the flesh is a source of much grief to all the true children of God. 
As soon as I had spoken these words, his expression became one of indescribable grief, and his heart began to swell again as after his parting with his mother. Oh, he exclaimed, looking up to heaven and squeezing my hands in his, thanks be unto God. I shall soon be out of a wretched world where I never did but rebel against God and man, and where I can now but grieve him who has bought me with his own blood. I could truly weep with him, for I knew by experience the powerful union of the Christian's three bitter foes, the flesh, the world, and the devil. I knew well how the devil stirs up the flesh and how the world loves to get hold of the result and make the best of it. Fearing now lest Satan should take advantage of his fault, and remembering he was only a child two weeks old, I proceeded to establish him in what he already perceived, plainly, that is, that a fault could in no wise affect his sonship. It could only affect his communion. His sonship rested on the finished work of Christ, through faith in him. His sonship, therefore, could not be touched, except by overthrowing Christ. Peace had been made by the blood of his cross, and he, risen from the dead and seated at God's right hand, is our peace. I pointed him to 1 Corinthians 1.30 and other passages of the same character, and in a little while I saw the desired effect. Seeing that nothing, not even his failures, could rob him of his salvation, since that was in Christ whom he believed, he said with more and more grief, O oh, blessed Savior, to think that I could thus grieve thee, thou whose blood has secured for me an eternal inheritance in heaven, I am ashamed of myself, Lord, that I could but lie down in confusion before thee. Turning to me, he said, And I have grieved you too, my brother. Ah, you are strong and able to resist the evil. Therefore God has called you to face it. But I am weak, so weak that God saw I was not fit to live, even as a child of his. I shall soon be where I can praise him as I wish. Well, said I, the same God who provided salvation for the sinner has also provided restoration for the believer. In restoration, as in salvation, the way is his own, and that is Christ. Salvation for the sinner is through his blood. Restoration for the believer is through his intercession. We read together the first ten verses of John 13, and then I said to him, do you see how Jesus, in anticipation of the work he was going to do on the cross for the salvation of sinners, girds himself with a towel and with water washes his disciples' feet? Peter, not knowing the wondrous work his master is to do, cannot understand such humiliation and therefore refuses to have him humble himself down to such work. But Jesus insists telling him he will know after a while what this means. In a moment Peter changes his mind and wants to be washed all over 
Oh, no, says Christ. He that is washed is clean every whit. He needeth not save to wash his feet. In 1 John 2.1, it's expressed, If any man sin, we who are saved have an advocation with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And again in Romans 8.34, Who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us believers? Jesus died, and therefore the believer lives. Jesus intercedes, and therefore the offending but confessing believer is restored to communion with God. His cup was full and running over. We knelt together, and in a quiet, subdued prayer, such as I had never heard before, he poured out his heart to God, especially beseeching him to keep him from ever again grieving his Holy Spirit and dishonoring his blessed name. For a long while we sat close together on his bench, he weeping like a child and only interrupting the silence from time to time by saying, How sweet to lie down on the mercy of God! Or, What a vile thing I am! Lord, what a vile thing I am! How kind in you, dear brother, to tell me! I am no better than you, I said. The flesh in me is the same as in you. My spirit is as willing as yours, and my flesh as weak also. Tomorrow I may need to be admonished in my turn. I have only done what my hand would do for another member of my body, if in need. Believing you belong to the body of Christ, to which I also belong, I have only followed that which the Lord of the body wishes to see, and which he expresses in 1 Corinthians 12. Read it when I am gone. I had come to the prison grieved at what had happened. I left it happier than ever, sure that the Lord would draw his praise out of this. On Friday, December 9th, he was quite taken up with some something he had found on Wednesday night after I had left him. It was the same thing with which he had been occupied for some days, of which he had tasted the bitter fruit a little while before, and which God was showing him with power, namely, the flesh. Until a late hour at night, he said, he was, as it were, swallowed up in this passage of Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. I saw myself, he said, a mere mass of corruption, and such corruption that I cannot describe my feelings. I praised God who enabled me to see myself as he saw me. And, oh, my brother, if you knew how I got to hating myself, it was such a strange thing. You know it is natural for every man to have some respect for himself. And even when in the penitentiary, if any man had said injurious things to me, I should have resented it, supposing my honor as a man was touched. Someone who called at the penitentiary made some cutting remark on my family, and upon hearing it, I made up my mind that my first duty after my release would be to avenge the offense. 
but since the other night it seems to me that the more evil said of me, the better it makes me feel. Indeed, it is lost time to talk evil about me. The best way to take it all in a lump and say, He is only evil. The very essence of me is evil. All for me can be but evil. Oh, what a sight! And yet, do you know, I was never so happy in my life. I can hardly tell why I should be so happy with such a sight. Except that it made the grace of God more manifest to me, but I was so happy I could not sleep. I felt as if I must get out of my cell, gather the whole world around me, and tell them they were all shapen in iniquity, conceived, born, and brought up in sin, and all rotten to the heart as well as myself. And the only way, of course, for such creatures to stand before a holy God, is by what Jesus has done. For the very best things such creatures could do, must be only filthy rags. I praised God again and again, and when I saw it was no use thinking about preaching to the world, I thought I must preach to the night guard. I have thought since that he may have imagined. From the way I spoke to him, that I was not quite right in my mind. The next morning, Saturday, December tenth, he was the first object of my thoughts as I awoke, and after asking the Lord to guide me through the day, I felt I could not even wait for breakfast, but must go to the prison. I found him pondering over Galatians two twenty, trying to get the meaning of it. As usual, I sat beside him, opened my own Bible, and referred him to Scripture for every question he asked, or which seemed meet in due season. I had just pointed him to First Corinthians one thirty, but of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. And was endeavoring to show him the divine perfection a man stands in, when he has Christ, who is made unto him, of God, wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. When he suddenly ceased paying attention to anything I said, and exclaimed, "Oh, what a wonderful thing I see! Christ Himself, my righteousness." Yes, Jesus Christ Himself, not what He has done, but His own self, as He is there at God's right hand. He is my righteousness. O、oh, my brother, do you see it? He had caught the blessed truth, and the state of happiness it threw him into took such hold of me also that I could scarcely keep quiet and kept on talking to him. But he said. That is enough. That is enough. Let me enjoy for a while, what I never dreamed man could enjoy, on earth. The silence we were in for a while was not what some might imagine—that of a dark, gloomy felon's cell. It was the silence of intense divine happiness, and of deep adoration. He broke the silence by saying. 
This sets me aside, does it not? Since Christ himself is my righteousness, it is a righteousness that is divine, complete, independent of me, of my feelings, of my thoughts, a righteousness which Satan himself cannot affect, no matter how much he may try me. Now I see that before I can perish, Christ himself must perish, for he is my righteousness. Oh, my brother, if he, my righteousness, has not appeared on the clouds of heaven before next Wednesday morning, I shall go to see him. Now, I said, you can take up Simeon's strain. Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation. The Holy Ghost has taught you a wondrous truth. For Christ, now your righteousness through faith, is God's righteousness. Therefore we who believe are made the righteousness of God in him. I see, he continued, how it is that I am a dead man before God. Christ was crucified and I was crucified with him. Christ died and I am a dead man. But Christ is risen and he is my righteousness. God looks on me in him and he loves me even as he loves Christ himself. How sweet these two lines are to me now. I am a poor sinner and nothing at all, but Jesus Christ is my all in all. On Monday, December 12th, I spent again the morning with him. He was in a deeply quiet state of mind. The hour is fast approaching, he said, but I know whom I have believed, God who says that by the blood of Jesus my sins are all washed away, and that he remembers them no more, has so enabled me to believe him that I have almost forgotten them too, and am wholly taken up with Christ my righteousness. Sometimes I wonder if it can be possible that such grace should be true. But when such thoughts come, I quickly open my testament and reassure myself that I am not mistaken. Oh, my brother, God's word alone can satisfy the soul with which God is at work. It is only what God says that is worth anything. Oh, how I wish men would see this. Let everything go but the word of God. And how does God say we are his children, I asked. By faith in Jesus Christ, he replied, pointing to the verse. And what does God say his children are, I asked again. He did not catch my thought, so I referred him to Romans 8.17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. After a little while of new delight from this passage, he said, Oh, that my mother and my brothers and sisters and everybody else might see the things that I see. You are just like me, I said. As I read and reread the word and discover new glories in it, I burn for the time of preaching to come to tell them to others. 
In a little while, the Spirit of God led us to the subject of the resurrection from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4 were the chief scriptures we used. Do you know, I said, what first fruits means? Well, it says there that Christ is the first fruits of all the brethren. Their turn will be when he comes. The spirit of believers, washed in his blood, are at rest in God's bosom the moment they leave the body, as it says in 2 Corinthians 5.8, absent from the body, present with the Lord. There they wait for their bodies to be raised immortal, as we wait here for ours to be changed. And all this, the scripture declares, will take place at his coming. At that grand hour, the crowning of all our waiting, the bodies of the dead saints shall all be raised again, only now in glory. And the bodies of all of us, his living saints, shall be changed in the twinkling of an eye and caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. This is the first resurrection, also called the resurrection of the just, which may occur today, while we are here talking together at any moment of the day or night. Those who are not saved belong to another resurrection, which occurs later, as you may see in Revelation 20. And thus, if the Lord does not come before you die, you will be waiting for his coming, and of course for the resurrection in God's bosom, whilst I shall be waiting down here, endeavoring to lead others in the same precious things you now see, and often getting for reward the sneers of those men described in Second Peter 3, 3, 4. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, Where is promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as from the beginning of the creation. You will be at rest, able to adore him without distraction of any kind, whilst I shall be at war, constantly struggling against everything which would rob me of an adoring spirit, defending the blessed truth which has made us free, and praying for grace to be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing our labor is not in vain in the Lord. How sweet, how sweet all this is, he exclaimed. It is wonderful how the word sets a man clear on everything. Yes, I said, if he is submissive to it. On Tuesday, December 13th, his countenance was calm. He seemed even more free than before from the strangling sobs which he could not restrain in all of our former interviews. I am living, he said, in the first four verses of Colossians 3 and in Ephesians 2. You are living in pastures which only sheep know, I said, and they are sweet. Yes, very, very sweet, he replied. They are so sweet that I have nothing whatever to wish for, for myself, save that my Father may give me grace and strength to deport myself in everything as it becomes a poor sinner saved by grace. Since I can glorify God in nothing else now, 
May I glorify him in the full peace and confidence which become one whose righteousness is Christ. God may glorify himself through you more than in this which you desire, I said. As soon as I saw the Holy Ghost had opened your eyes to see the grace of God, a voice kept repeating in my ears, Here is an instrument by which God will display what he is. So I have carefully and accurately as possible penned the substance of every one of our interviews, which I intend to publish as soon as I can, in the full assurance that the Lord will use it for his glory in the building of his church. Have you any objection to this? I asked. May the Spirit of our God go with it, he answered. Oh, may he use it for the opening of many, many eyes and the joy of many, many hearts. I will now pray for this to my end, that God may glorify himself by it. The Last Night I was kindly allowed what we both wished much to spend the last night together as the hour of the execution was eight o'clock in the morning so I arranged to return in the evening. No words can describe the strange sweet hours that night. Its sweetness, deepened by its sadness, cannot be told. It was my share of God's grace displayed in him. It was my harvest for my three weeks of teaching. It was no more teaching and learning as before. We were feasting together on what he had learned during the past three weeks. There was no noise, no excitement. Ours was a quiet cell that night, but oh, the solemnity of it. Jesus was there. Dear listener, do you know what it is to worship God? Do you know what it is to possess eternal life? To know that that life is in Jesus? Yea, is Jesus himself who sits at God's right hand, now in the very same body in which he bore our sins on the tree? Do you know what it is to keep his word and let go of everything else? Then you know what Jesus meant when he said, This is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. And you may form some idea of what we both enjoyed that night. I wept sore many a time at the thought that that man, whom I now loved as my own soul, was about to be torn away from me in such a violent manner. But he would say, Do not weep, brother. You know I am a son of God redeemed by the blood of Jesus. But this, while it forbade all bitterness, only grieved me the more, for that was the very ground and bond of my love to him. His favorite expression through the whole night was, A son of God, a part, yes, a very part of thee, Lord Jesus. Oh, why should I not rejoice? He never remained long without returning to his testament, which lay opened on the table with many leaves turned and many portions underlined. It was not to seek anything new, but to read and 
reread the passages which referred most clearly to the grace of God. The special portions he used were Galatians 2.20, Romans 6 and 8, Ephesians 2, Colossians 3, 1 to 4, and John 14, 1 to 4. An expression in the passage of Galatians 2 especially filled him, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. It is nothing of mine, he would say. It is all of God, not even my faith. I am a man in Christ, in the Son of God, one spirit with him, flesh of his flesh, bone of his bone, a very part of him, and this for all eternity. Oh, Jesus, Jesus, he would often exclaim, how I love thee. In a few hours I shall feast on thee, O Lord Jesus, to my heart's content. Then shall I be filled. But, O my Father, until then, give me to remember that I walk by faith, not by sight, by simple faith in what thou hast written in thy blessed book. Often we prayed. He never asked anything for himself, save that he might have strength from the Lord to act in the last moment as it becomes one who has all things in Christ. Thou knowest, my father, he would say, how natural it is to the flesh to shrink from death, and especially a death like this. But Jesus has borne my sins in his own body on the tree. He is risen. He sits at thy right hand, and he is my life. I therefore... Thou knowest it, my Father, have no fear of any kind concerning eternity. There is no sting in death for me, but the world will be looking at me, Lord, and I should shame thee and thy word were I to show weakness. Help me in that hour. The burden of his prayers was chiefly for all his brethren in Christ Jesus. He would tell the Lord what a wicked world they were in, and how much they needed his help to go through for his glory. He also besought the Lord much for all his family, especially for his mother and a grown-up sister. He prayed much that God would stir up the people everywhere to hear the truth as it is in Jesus. He asked often that the publication of our interviews might be blessed to everyone who should read it, and upon my telling him of a special work for the Lord, which weighed somewhat on my mind, he, several times before morning, besought the Lord for it. At one time, as he lay resting on his bench, his coat rolled up under his head for a pillow, his happiness became so intense that he said to me, I do not believe I can live till morning. His eyes closed, his hands lifted toward heaven as he lay on his back, he only gave sign of life by repeating in a low voice, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, one with thee. I long for thee, Lord Jesus. Soon he reached from my hand, which he put on his forehead under his own, and in this he slept a little while. On awakening he asked what time it was. Just three, I said. 
Five hours more, my blessed Jesus, and I shall be with thee, he said. Oh, how sweet that is! I, I never knew what real, unbroken, unclouded happiness was, even until last Saturday when I saw Christ in heaven as my righteousness. I know what peace is since that morning when I saw the finished work of Christ for my salvation. But since I have known Christ himself as my righteousness, I know what joy means. He continued, Several gentlemen called in yesterday and seemed to pity me in my condition, but oh, how I do wish they might be as I am, save the hanging. Again he said, Morning is coming, and I wish to forget nothing. The testament was given to me by Mr. G., and I leave it for him to carry to my mother. It is the best gift I ever had. May my dear mother find in it what I have found. This packet of tracts I also leave for you to carry to my mother. It will be a kindness to me if you visit her as often as you can. Tell her I am at home, a sinner saved by grace through faith. Christ has done it all, and it is believing that makes everything ours. If she will only believe, she will meet me again when Jesus comes. Tell my sister she is lost, as lost as I was, and must therefore be saved in the same way in which I am saved. Please write to her and tell her I never knew what happiness was, till I saw the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Tell her she may think she is happy in the pleasures of the world, but I know they will end in death and eternal woe. When you have published our interviews, send a copy to each of my relatives, whose addresses you have. Tell everybody that I love, yes, I dearly love, all whose confidence is where mine is and who love my blessed Jesus. Moreover, I affectionately and solemnly warn them who seem to place much confidence in the church or in ordinances. I have received several books and other matters since I have been here which talk in that way, but I am sure there is nothing so dangerous because it hides Christ in whom alone is salvation and grace and strength. These things I know are very good in their place, but I feel sure many are putting them before Christ. For if they saw in Christ what I see, they would set him up so high that the other things would not be noticed much. Insist that forgiveness of sins is not when a man dies, but when he believes because the debt was all paid by Jesus on the tree. Tell the world that it is lost, but that God sent his Son to save it, that the work for our salvation was finished when Jesus died. Oh, that they would believe. If they could see in Jesus what I see, they would not stay away another moment. He called the night guard and said, Oh, Mr. R., I love you. I do love you so much that I wish I could see you resting in Christ before I die. 
I have determined now to try to be a Christian, answered the guard. Oh, no, that will not do. That will not do, he replied. God wants none of your determination. It is his son, eternal life, a finished redemption he offers you. Will you not have it? Look at me. Three hours more, and I shall hang. And yet I am the happiest man living. What do you think of that? Is there not reality in Christ? Is it not a reality worth having? Look at that man, he pointed to me. The love of Christ has enabled him to leave the world and be happy in such a place as this. Is there not reality in Christ? Thus he pleaded, and after a while he said to me, Let us pray for Mr. R. Maybe the Lord will show him what we see. Often he would take both my hands in his, stoop a little so as to draw his face close to mine, and then would say, We are two sons of God, two members of the body of Christ, two brothers in him. Is that not delightful? And so saying, he would look into my eyes until I was compelled to drop my eyelids. Oh, that face, how dear to me, it still lives. At seven o'clock he said, Now, Lord, one more glance at thy word. Then I will tie up the book for my dear mother, and I go to thee. After he had arranged everything, he said to me, Now Satan is assailing me. I felt afraid of this, for I well knew that Satan could see that he would soon be out of his reach, so I could but silently pray for him. In about four or five minutes, he said, It is all over. I am one with Christ, and Christ is one with God. God is my Father, and Satan is at my feet. As the noise of feet and voices was beginning to be heard all around, he said, Soon we shall be surrounded by people, so let me bid you goodbye as I wish. And so saying, he kissed me over and over again, then let me go, and said, You have taught me the truth of God, and he has plucked me as a brand from the burning. May God bless you in everything you do. May he make you strong to preach the same things to many more, till Jesus comes. While he spoke, the cell had been opened, and we were asked to go into another cell, where several were assembled with the other criminal. The End A few minutes before eight, the arms of both men were tied to ascend to the gallows. While he was being tied, a shiver seemed to pass over him. Our eyes met, and again his smiling face was turned up toward heaven. The procession moved on, but as he was a little behind, I held him by the sleeve till all but the turnkey had gone out, and I kissed him for the last time. A few minutes after, he was out of the body and present with the Lord, and I returned home with my sorrow and my joy. Thus the same Savior, who said to the dying thief, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise, 
who saved the chief of sinners on the road to Damascus, saved Daniel Mann, the housebreaker, murderer, and convict. Marvelous grace! Has it reached your heart, dear listener? Can you also add, he has plucked me as a brand from the burning? Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation but is passed from death unto life. You may say what one of the wardens of Kingston Prison said to Daniel Mann when spoken to by him about his state in God's sight, I am not as great a sinner as others. Whereupon Mann replied, He that believeth not is condemned already. If you never have been converted to God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Christ has paid sin's penalty and borne sin's judgment, and as you hear these words, you may pass from death unto life and from the power of Satan to God. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Then with Daniel Mann and millions more, you will sing in glory unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Thank you.